Hey, as we start this episode, which I've tried to start about 35 times with this postscript preface, uh, I wish I'd press record as even before Dennis Miller got in the Zoom room because he starts wailing right away and uh, he never looks back. He crushes me at least 10 times. He gets Scott once and even gets Holmberg, uh, which wasn't even deserved. <laughs> the Caliendo cast with Frank Caliendo, John Holmberg, Scott Long, and the rest of of the Caliendo crew. It's the most important podcast in the history of Western civilization. I'm recording. I should. Can you do it over? Can you start it over? Can you start it? Can you do it again? Who's Walter White with the ceiling fan here? <laughs> and he can do it. Get into it. Go. He can set it up for you. We're a fucking family. I can do the dirtiest. <laughs> I'll come in with some ermine trout. Okay. All right. Everything's going to be fine. Skyler, all you have to do is listen. <laughs> can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. You're yes. loud and clear. All right. Let's go. <laughs> All right, Walter White, Walter White with a ceiling fan is my favorite thing ever because why wouldn't he? But that was an <laughs> he's, he's just a little bit warm. Ah, he's a Steeler fan too. Let's go yeah. on. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a quick Steeler story. Yeah, get into it. All right. Or maybe we're on. Are we on already? No, just we're, go, go. We'll go. We'll just go. I, I, uh, you, you started out. You took the house. Run with it. I don't care. Frank, geez, I've never seen you out of your professional mode. What, what is that, a fur blanket there on the <laughs> What are you working out of Plato's retreat for fuck's sake? <laughs> I thought I, I thought you'd be in the the yellow shag room over there. Um, so uh, good to see you, man. <laughs> okay, so it's John Holmberg, uh, who's a, a phenomenal radio guy. Even people in uh, comedy, stand-up comedy, <laughs> usually radio guys. What's up, Johnny? How are you, Dennis? Pleasure. You got to put that fan up. It's chopped your fucking hair off. <laughs> I see the Steeler logo there. You know, right. when, when Rooney won the team way back when, the, yep. it might be apocryphal, but the, the story you hear is that uh, he was so broke that uh, the, only, the Steelers are the only team with a logo on one side of their helmet because he couldn't <laughs> afford to replicate it on both sides. So that's why the Steelers have always had the Steeler logo only yep. on one side. Maybe it's true. I'd like to think it is. All right, so Scott Long is our other uh, participant of one of our uh, podcast partners. Nice, the mighty Scotty Long, John Holmes. What are you, you're running a fucking porn <laughs> double entendre gig over here. Uh, I mean, this guy comes ready to shoot. <laughs> who is this cat in the ex-Packer? This guy looks like the guy who drafted Sam Congato a few years ago. <laughs> oh we usually... Dennis, we usually have a guy on the show, a young kid. Uh, he, I met him in an airport. Let me shut Sean this break. One second. Okay, no problem. <laughs> so I met a kid, uh, this guy. Uh, he's a college student at the Cronkite School of Broadcasting. I met him in an airport. He knew who I was. He, uh, he said, are you Frank Caliendo? I said, yes. He, and I said, do you want to, after he told me he went to the, Bron uh, the Cronkite Broadcast School, I was like, do you want an internship? He's got to do a story today, but usually he writes down all the references we make during yeah. the show that he doesn't know. 
And I told him to bring a notebook today. <laughs> and, and he's out on assignment. They put him out on assignment. We're going to make him listen back, and he's going to fill up the notebook. Well, they used to. Uh, it's when I was on Monday Night Football. At the beginning, it was like a, you know, or I'd say at the beginning, around forty percent of the country liked me, and sixty percent hated my guts. But one of the kids <laughs> in the forty percent who liked me. Uh, would would do a ibid the next day where he'd break down all the weird references and then uh, eventually started edge up i'd say i got up maybe to 47 uh like he made 53 hating my guts but yeah. it, that guy stayed consistent he would always break down all the weird references the one day i got a great monday night football story i gotta tell you frank and uh long dong and what the fuck <laughs> these guys are uh johnny wad <laughs> Uh, I'm kidding. Love it. <laughs> anyway, we're doing a game one night, and Chris Carter hurts his ankle. This is how long ago it was. And by the way, nobody worked the field. Nobody got more out of the field than Chris Carter. I mean, he with the feet tap, you know, and the uh, the hands. The guy was beautiful. A beautiful piece of work. Probably the best since Raymond Berry at doing that out route and staying in bounds. So anyway, he hurts his ankle. They're wrapping his ankle on TV. And uh, Al's a genius, Al Michaels. But I used to like – he he was like the guy on the Sullivan Show who could spin the plates and keep them all going. Here's the play-by-play. Here's the owner's story. Here's what's coming up on ABC or whatever station we were on this week. Here's the backstory. Here's throwing at the Fauci. But if you made him laugh – and I could make him laugh with the weird arcane references. He would kind of get thrown off. So I spent my whole two years there trying to get Al off his feet. So they show Chris <laughs> Carter. He's getting his ankle wrapped on the sidelines. And I say to Al on the air, I go, you know, Al, I haven't seen that much fabric used since the environmental artist Christo wrapped the Pont Neuf Bridge in Paris. And Al hits his sneeze button, which cuts his voice out to the home viewers. He looks at me in the booth and he goes, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Don Olmeyer. Olmeyer's down in the truck, and he fancies himself an artificial In my headphone, I actually hear Olmeyer say, no, Al, Christo, environmental artist, solid reference. That's a solid reference. All right, 36, guys. <laughs> Dennis, was there a time? Was there a time? Because I remember thinking to myself when you were on Monday Night Football, this is both my favorite thing and will never work. When after a late hit, you said, that hit was later than Godot. And I'm like, <laughs> this won't work, but no, this I is brilliant. Whack. Uh, listen, you got to go out on your own shield. I'll tell you the one problem I did have there, and I, I don't like it when people don't take the bullet for when they fuck up. Um, I did go in so freaked out at the beginning thinking, how in, how in God's name have I ended up on Monday Night Football? I did have that surrealistic moment where I prepped too much. But, you know, I look back on it and I think, what are you going to do? I mean, you don't know what you're doing. You're about to be on Monday Night Football. You've I mean, been on your couch and your underwear your whole life. All of a sudden, I'm in the booth and I hear dun, 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 dun. And I'm thinking, Christ, this is... So then the, <laughs> the next week, I remember thinking, try to write some things out. The worst mistake I made there. Because, uh, you know, I'd look and I'd think, well, who's playing? What could you write a that was silly, but but I like I said I hold myself to a pretty loose uh, thing there because once you do a Monday Night Football and you're a comedian and you think how did I do this you you over prep a little but other than that some of the references were good and I just remember thinking uh, you know I remember two teams were playing who did a lot of trading with each other I said the bloodlines are more intertwined than the Plantagenets and the next day I got a fucking moron like Rudy Martsky who's 
head that can barely fit into the shit little photo at the top of his collar. All of a sudden, he's at the Algonquin table. I think, I'm so fucked here. I'm gone. If this is the guy who I'm going to have to shoot this through, this vapid Stargate. So, yeah, I knew I wasn't long for the planet. I decided to go out on my shield. Yeah. And sports, hey Frank, one, of the, Frank. one of the things about sports and doing comedy in sports, it's a totally different audience than doing comedy for, com- for a comedy audience. Yeah. I've lived with that for 20 years, I guess now, that you go out and do comedy for a sports audience and they're like, we're here for sports first. You better be really good. And this kind of goes with what you said over prepping. When I was at Fox and we did the sketches with Scott, Schlo- Scott Long helped write. Gosh, Long. Scott Schlong, which is this morning. <laughs> it's catching. When uh, w- we were the only thing that was planned comedy in the show. And the funniest moments of the NFL on Fox, the pregame show, uh, uh, was Terry Bradshaw screwing up or Howie Long saying mm-hmm. the wrong word. And then from reality, from authenticity, the laughter would come from them ripping each other. When we came in with a pre-taped segment, it was hard. And I think it's very similar to what you were saying there. You would come in with yeah. pre-planned thoughts, and you're like, I'm pushing these in. It's like Walton throwing yeah, in, get little... left shrimp. I mean, that's, the, that's the tough <laughs> thing. You know? It was Tom Tolbert that told me that, that he said, Tom Tolbert said, just work in get left shrimp. Because he, <laughs> he would just say, that's the best player. Uh, you know, on the court, John, John had uh, one that I was on the way to Mike and Mike one morning. That little shrimp, by the way, is whatever his country, whatever German. I think it's German for big dick. Do you have anybody <laughs> in your life who is not a double entendre for dick? You've introduced me to Buck Johnson. I voted for Dick Army. What the fuck is going on over there? Well, I, I was on the way to Mike and Mike one morning. I didn't have anything new for Bill Walton. Mike and Mike is code for testicles. <laughs> and I, Holmberg had this line uh, that, that, that uh, Bill Walton actually said, the entire arena rising as one. And that, I threw that in there that one time. But it's, that, it's those, just those ridiculous references, that type of stuff that just, I don't know. I, best, I don't know. best college basketball player I've ever seen. I, I know he had pet problems in the show, but that game against Memphis State, and I think Larry Finch threw down for north of 40 himself, I've never seen a more perfectly played basketball game. The big man was beautiful. He'd get it into the post and just deflect, pass it back out. He was, that, well, literally not the best pro, but it didn't play out. He had a great year there with Portland, but Bill, Bill Walton's the best college basketball player I ever saw. Him. He, he was 21 for 22 yeah. from the field in that game. 21 of 22 in the championship game. Then ESPN has this bullshit top player in the history of college basketball. And Michael Jordan's towards the top. And Walton's out in the second round. Oh. And, of course, it's all just millennials and young people picking. And it's like Bill Walton was the greatest unless it's Kareem. It's one of those two guys for college basketball. Lou Alcindor, who never lost a game, or Bill Walton. It had to be one of those two. And it's beautiful after Kareem is uh, – Lou at that point is a freshman. He yeah. so devastates that they have to get rid of the – and the sky hook is birthed. Boy, the unintended consequences of that. They put him down as the greatest scorer ever the moment they said you can't dunk. And that yep. skyhook 
Jesus, man, that, that is so beautiful. When you think about it, it's like Carlton Slider that year. It, you know, it's like MJ's cry or Timmy Hardaway's crossover. There's a few moments where you yeah. just go, that's as good as that's going to get. And yeah. I'm not allowing the big man from Power Memorial to dunk. <laughs> they, uh, they, they, uh, they birthed the sky hook. Beautiful. I like my man over here from the Packers. Oh, Pacers, are you kidding me? I, I, when I was a kid, I had, okay. season, I had season tickets. They were like 35 bucks for a kid to the Pipers. And I used to follow Pittsburgh. Big Big Mel Daniels and yeah. Roger Brown. That was the squad. Neto. And uh, they had a hell of a team over there. I think, I think Daniels and them were the Minnesota Muskies one year. But then they went down and played in Indiana. Didn't they? He was great. Yeah. And um, Roger Brown and Connie Hawkins were – it's an amazing story. If anyone wants to look this up, they were the two best players in New York high school basketball. They never bet or took any money, really, for throwing a game. And they never had an NBA career for eight years because some gambler got mm. thrown in. So Roger Brown, who would have been a superstar in the NBA, has to play for the Pittsburgh Piper, Pipers, which yeah. is a terrible name. No, the Hawk did. And the Hawk was uh, Dr. J before yeah, Dr. that's right. J was. No, yeah, that's right. Connie a, Hawkins. I, I saw every one of the, and I'm telling you what the beauty of it was. They had uh, uh, Artie Hyman came over, the old glue man from Duke, and he played like Billy Bradley off the ball. He never quit running. We had good players, Tom Washington, Chico Vaughn, Charlie Williams, and the Hawk. We had a good coach, Vince Cazetta, but they didn't have the glue guy who didn't need the score. Art Hyman came over. I'm always so happy for him because in his head, he probably always thought, I've got this. I just can't get the shot. He came over and was a thing of beauty, and we won the first year. It was uh, some of my great memories. When I see the Indiana Pacers thing, man, that gave me goosebumps. Who's <laughs> right behind your head? Is that soccer? Yeah, it's just like a Wembley Stadium photo and a U.S. Yeah. Uh, soccer is exciting. It's great. It's the best. Get the yeah. Well, this is a Pittsburgh Pipers podcast. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> We're what happened to uh, did Frank leave? Didn't no, he? I, I had a <laughs> huh? don't you have no, some a... noontime thing where you go play George Hamilton in an old folks' home for people <laughs> with a couple bucks? <laughs> Little Zorro, the gay blade. Uh, yeah. uh, tell the bald guy not to lean over and show me the top of his fucking head like that. I think I saw three sixes. <laughs> So uh, there's a legendary story about you uh, as you started doing stand-up comedy. And I want to find out if that was true because people would talk about you would go out on the road. And this is different club owners and comics telling me this as I was coming up. They say Dennis Miller would come through. Uh, he would do his bits and people would accuse you of stealing stuff. Yeah. And that, so that is true? Well, it's when I got to L.A. And I, I got to give Seinfeld this. He's so beautiful. I haven't talked to Jerry in a while. It's weird how life takes you, but Jerry was always, listen, before Jerry was Jerry, Jerry was Jerry. He was always so smooth and he knew his place. I remember one night telling Jerry he had come back from the Great Gorge Playboy Club. He did the Laney Kazan room out there. I met him at the comic store. It was like 2.30 in the morning. We're having a burger. 
And he goes, read it, weep, boys. He pulls out this check for like 300 bucks or something to do a gig. And we're all like, 300 bucks? Christ, I didn't make that last year. So I say to Jerry, then I get SNL and I go do a cruise. And I think I get 750 a night for two nights out to Bermuda and back. And I say to Jerry, uh, hey, brother, I made 1,500 bucks on this cruise. Maybe you ought to get, uh, try one of these. He looks at me. He goes, you know, I've never felt the need to vacation with my audience. <laughs> <laughs> even, even when we were broke, Jerry had the two. So, uh, but anyway, I go to L.A. And I'm working in Pittsburgh at a place called the Pittsburgh Comedy Club. Guys are coming through. I'm not saying I got you. Listen, I was rough, but I had some good jokes. They're like mining me and going back to L.A. in particular. I don't know if I should say his name. It doesn't really mean much down the road, uh, but I also don't want – I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to go outside the uh, – I hate it when – what stays in the locker room stays in the locker room. For me. Sure. But a comedian goes back to L.A. and he's doing my jokes uh, and, uh, at the improv. I move out there. I go up on stage. And uh, I come off stage and Bud, I don't know, do you catch no Bud Freeman? Or yeah. is that too yeah. early? Mm -hmm. Bud's standing there. He's got a fucking monocle in. Christ, I'm taking <laughs> notes from a guy in monocles. Like I'm in an acting class with Werner Klemper. <laughs> he calls me over and he says, uh, listen, young man, I don't know who you think you are, but you're doing uh, my regulars material. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I said, I, I don't think so. And uh, and he, I go, what jokes? I, he mentions a few jokes. It's this guy has nicked me completely. Come back to L.A. Seinfeld walks down that hallway there. It's like, the, the you know, um, there's a hallway between the main room and the bar. Jerry walks in. He goes, what's the problem? And he goes, he's stealing Bubba da Buzz jokes. And Seinfeld says, oh, for Christ's sake, you could wake this kid up from a coma. He'd write better than that guy. <laughs> <laughs> he saved me. He saved me. But by staying in Pittsburgh, and I was so shy, and I never wanted to try it. But eventually when I did, I found out that a couple guys had made a strip mine some jokes and taken them back. Is Seinfeld that quick? I've never, like, I've only thought of Seinfeld as writing material, and two things that you said are off the cuff and, you know, just. Well, listen, uh, Jerry is one of the, I'm trying to think, Hedberg's up there. Uh, he's one of the five. It, three greatest writers I've ever seen. Really? Uh, you know, Gary Shannon is a great writer, quick writer. Uh, Jerry's a great writer. But Jerry just in his regular metier is about as cool as it gets. I mean, really. And, and the fact that he laughs at stuff so well tells you how firm he is in his footing as far as being, you know, a great, you know who laughs better than Jerry? When I used to light Jerry up, nothing made me felt better <laughs> than to make Jerry Seinfeld laugh that hard where he'd say, stop, stop. See, and I, uh, no, no, he's quick. He's, uh, I, I, somebody sent me a tape. He's on Howard Stern saying, uh, Stern asked about me. He said, I don't know. I guess maybe he doesn't quite say lazy, but it hints at that. And I cop, guilty. I never wanted it as bad as some man. I, I just don't work <laughs> as hard as I used to. Uh, and, uh, but in, in our time, when we were starting out, there was a group of guys who would hang together, Mar and Jerry, George Wallace, Jimmy Brogan. And we'd all eat at a diner, I remember, up by Catch Your Rising Star. It had green and white lattice work. And Jerry was always so funny. I mean, just killer. Yeah, he's quick. He's quick, 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 quick. 
Yeah, because I always think of him as the monologist with the written word, and I don't think of him as just being so snappy. Yeah, well, quit pissing on him, Frank. Get some fucking <laughs> sound towels. No, what, just... you ran out of money before you could complete the sound wall behind you? What's the, <laughs> what's the little... You That's jag just... off, I'm telling you, he's quick, for Christ. I'm defending Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> I'm telling you, he's quick. Don't dig your eye out. I know it's at a pole, but I'm telling you, the guy is quick. You'll have to take my word on it. No, no, Seinfeld's slow. He he learns his stuff phonetically. He's like Mr. Ed in a fucking barn. He has to knock these jokes out with his hook. I'm telling you, he's quick. Oh. Well, that's the thanks for joining us. <laughs> All right, Frankie. What do you got to no, go over now and piss on uh, little coward? What's your deal? <laughs> oh, I just find I just find it amazing. I, I I am doing exactly what I didn't want to do and just sitting here listening because I enjoy it so much. Why not? Why don't, uh, listen, uh, are you are we wrapped up? Did you say we got to go? No, I'm lying. I was making oh, that. Oh, okay. I no. Hey, no. Dennis, my, I didn't know I you were that quick. quick. <laughs> All right, what do we got here? Now here's here's another question. Okay, so how many brothers do you have? Two. Okay, so all three brothers, people don't know. You One of your brothers, huge uh, Hollywood, Hollywood agent. The other brother booked all these comedy clubs. What's, that st what, what's the deal with your family when you've analyzed it? Why all three brothers... I mean, they were all successful in comedy in different routes. Well, I don't know. You know, I got into comedy first, and then uh, my brother Jimmy... And listen, either of those two cats could be comedians. Flat yeah. out, stone killer, funny. We've got yeah. the same voice in a weird way. Rich, Rich never finishes a word. He's like, hey, I got five hundo for a gig in uh, <laughs> Albuquerque. <laughs> yeah, I used to work for him. And it would be like, oh, my gosh, this is like Dennis. But you're right. He doesn't finish his lines. It's, it's all half like, words. It's 50% yeah. yeah. and you're going, I don't. I don't have a Miller. I, I need the Rosetta Stone for Millers here, Chachi. <laughs> Somebody go back once. to ancient Egypt and crack the code for me, Billy. I'm on fire here. <laughs> Kelly Endo's call and Seinfeld's slow, and now I'm visiting the Love Sack store trying to figure out what's happening. There's my act right there, my entire career. I remember once I got a call from Michael Douglas. He was at the Venice Film Festival, and he calls me and he says, Listen, I, I, I'm on the bridge of size. I'm with this crazy bald motherfucker all day thinking, how do I know this guy? He's making me laugh so hard. All of a sudden, I turn just because I can't see him, but his rhythms are so in my head. And I go, are you Dennis's brother? And he says, <laughs> yeah. So, Jimmy, we have the exact same rhythms. Rich is a little more Midwestern. But um, listen, I, I think Jimmy went over, you know, Jimmy's, genius jimmy's a huge player he was on jim carrey before anybody else shepherd him through he's he's funny and he's always so smart i remember saying to my little brother once imagine your little brother who used to give indian head rub to oh i know native american head rub don't fucking go on a ledge no wake the fuck up so anyway my my um your little brother all of a sudden one time I said, why don't you go over and see Judd on the set of the film? He represents Judd. Uh, and uh, he said, I don't usually like to go on the sets of their films. And I said, what's that about? And he said, um, listen, I don't want them to think that I think I'm creative. He's, I'm happy being their, uh, their manager. He said, I don't want to nibble on that turf. Too many guys do, they, they hang in the periphery of it. 
and try to, you know, glean some reflected glory off the cookies there. Fuck that. He's I'm the, I'm their manager. And he said, the less time I spend there, the more it, it looks like I'm uh, all for them. I always thought, imagine your little brother saying, I said, Jesus, Jimmy, that is so smart. And then my other brother, Rich, got into it uh, much later. But I'll tell you what, he's, they're trusted. They're, they're words, they're bond, those two guys. You know, I'm a, I'm a little more standoffish than them. I don't think it, people might ascribe that to me. But I, I think that, too, is a, they, they, don't, they won't lie to you. And uh, so I think my, my brothers have done well because they're, the word is their bond. And they're not real squares, and they're hip enough to know when it's time to flick the jab, and they flick the jab. So I'm, I'm really proud of them. They're sweet cats. So with the speaking rhythm, is that in any other part of your family too, your parents, or is yeah. that just something you guys developed? Yeah, you know what? I got that uh, in, the, in the mid to late 70s. Richard Belzer stood astride the stage at Catch a Rising Star like a latter-day sardonic colossus of roads, man. The ships had to go between his legs. It was so fucking beautiful and powerful. <laughs> and I watched Belzer up there one night and I had like eight alchemies go off. The staccato burst was beautiful, or not alchemies, uh, eight illuminations go off in my head. The, the staccato burst worked well. He didn't suck up. He made them come to him. He, you know, he gave off that subtle tone that, listen, here's what I do. And it, it's like a woman who ignores you. It's intoxicating. So I got that sort of rapid burst off Belzer. And I also got the thing. It's like Carlin told me. He got it once. He's out there in his, uh, you know, Carlin's in his chimp suit on Sullivan, you know, doing the world looks wonderful from here. And all of a sudden he says, fuck it. And he goes, Oak Ridge boys. And he comes out, you know, tie-dyed, loaded, and hip. And he takes over the world. You have to have that moment. And when I watched Belzer and how little he kissed ass to the crowd, it went off in my head. I could never be like Bells because he was Anton LaVey, man. He was the dark prince. But I do remember <laughs> thinking, don't act needy with them. They don't need needy off you. They need alacrity. They need some sort of flourish. Scaramouche. They want to follow you here. So don't be an ass kisser. They get enough ass kissers in their life. They just came from an office job where they watched some drip go by them at the speed of light because they knew what asses to kiss. Come up here and either be good or be bad, but don't suck up. So I get a lot of it from Belzer, especially that ba-ba-ba-ba. Now, the, 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 uh, the meter came from SNL because I wrote the news with a guy named Herb Sargent. And I couldn't write earlier in the week uh, something about my cat's paws had to be dangled over the precipice for me to get scared shitless. And around Friday at four o'clock, I'd think you fuck three of these up in a row, man. Whitney Brown's got it or you're co-hosting or something. You better get it together here. And so when I would be stuck certain weeks for jokes, I had a big thing on my wall out of construction paper. It said indignation. What am I? Arcane reference. And whenever I get stuck on a joke, so that's why that there's a three pronged iambic pentameter to the joke. Ba ba da ba, fulcrum, ba 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 da ba. You know, it's like Carvey always said. He called it Morse Miller. It's sort of like a, a pissier version of Charlie Brown's parents. But it, it was definitely in my head that meter. How many people tried to stop that early in your career where they're like, this doesn't work? You're playing Jeopardy with the audience. Oh, nobody. I, I, listen, I, like I said, I'm a, I'm a bit of an outlier. I didn't give big openings for people to come in and uh, tell me what I was doing. I watched too many audiences laugh at how many uh, Rwandans can you fit in a phone booth, all of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> I've seen audiences fall out at that. And I remember looking at that and thinking, 
well, they're, they're not my arbiter. I mean, yeah, this, right. you know, I got to be the guy. I'll go out on my shield if I have to. Right. But I, I didn't leave the sort of openings where people said, that, you know, I, I don't solicit avuncular. I remember sitting with Drake Sather one night. Do you remember the great Drake Sather? Yeah. Awesome. He, awesome. He was beautiful. Beautiful, sweet soul. It breaks my heart. But I remember sitting one night and Jay was at the upstairs level. And I love Jay. But, you know, Jay's like the avuncular granddad. He's like Yoda or something. So he's sitting up there. He's got that fucking Arthur Cronin Doyle pipe and a straw hat. And he's laying down his 10 precepts of comedy. Yeah, he always tell you best seven jokes on the shot. What are you saying for the next shot? You don't know you get the shot. He's laying down all the, you know, the 95 species. And Drake Sailor sitting in the back. And I was more like him as far as sharing it at the end. He goes, you know what I mean, fellas? And Drake takes a hit on his cigarette. He goes, Thanks, Jay. I got a dad. Just <laughs> 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 wiped me out. So as far as anybody saying, I want to take you aside, listen, all I had was the Arcania. I, if they yeah. had said, if, if, listen, I remember Shecky Green came back one night, and maybe there's one guy, not Shecky, um, Buddy Hackett came to my dressing room once in Vegas, and I do remember him saying, uh, uh, Gang, it's funny, but why do you dip into the blue ink? Because I, you know, I said, fuck. And uh, I, I said, buddy, I, I've heard you drop the C word when a waitress spills a drink for Christ's sake. All, all of a sudden, you're going to come in and tell me. I didn't take advice well. I tried to be, I tried to be polite about it, but what are you going to do? It's your, you know, I'm skydiving here. I got to pack my shoot. Buddy Hackett is not the guy to take advice from. You're one. Of, I was Barry Katz's wedding. Do you know Barry Katz? Yeah, sure. Unbelievable man! You should hear Dennis Miller string these things together. The references are unbelievable. But let me just say this, Dennis. Dennis, and it's amazing what you've done with your career. You start out is a young man in <laughs> Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We're going to do the whole thing day by day. You're at Point Park University. Yeah. Learning. Becoming who you'd eventually become. Papa. <laughs> Unbelievable. And then you get Saturday Night Live and Drake Sather tells Jay Leno to basically fuck off. <laughs> I remember uh, Buddy Hackett, he's standing there in front of me acting like he's Pliny the Elder. His fucking eyes are like the opening credits for North by Northwest. <laughs> I'm thinking, Christ, I'm taking notes from a, a crazy man. Buddy Hackett took a drink and destroyed a Beatles tribute band's uh, entire music setup and was like what was with that fucking rabbi the rabbi kept talking about divorce at barry's wedding he's like what's with the fucking rabbi and, just throws, and you just hear you just hear like hey Jew. <laughs> just completely destroyed but he was a maniac i mean there's for him to be that's so funny when people give advice that have no reason to be giving it's like rodney dangerfield you got to keep yourself clean, kid. Like, what are you, wrong guy? No. Yeah. Listen, I have a, I have a book of Buddy, Buddy Hackett poetry. I'm not kidding you. A cat named Jose Arroyo, who used to work with me when we were on HBO, he went over. I think he ended up on Letterman for years. Great writer and his going away gift. He bought me a slim tome of Buddy Hackett's poetry. And I'm telling you, man, it makes E.E. Uh, e. Cummings look like R. Lee Ermey. It's so funny. <laughs> 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 right, 
right there, John. John had a, a great question that he, he was like, we got to ask this question. Ask that yeah. question, John. I was going to say, because you take me back to the fourth grade and the day the teacher introduced similes to you and you just said, that's it. I fucking got it. I'm making money. It's <laughs> my, my chimp trick, brother. I'm yeah. telling you, similes come to me like... Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, they come to me. What can wait I a second. say? Wait a second. Was that planned? Or yes, that it's planned. Okay, I'm making it. sure. Christ Almighty! You know he doesn't really saw the chicken half copper fit, right? <laughs> Christ, it's like I'm talking to Bambi. Wake the fuck up! You're in show business. I know. I thought it was a joke. I just want to make sure because I can't think of stuff. Christ, I haven't seen somebody come up and tidy this up since the end of the Rocky and Bullwinkle show with Whisk Room. Get it together. <laughs> Yeah, do you feel, does it intentionally, like, do you realize what you do to the audience when somebody gets your reference and you know that's a deep pull and it just ma it makes people feel better than laughing? Listen, I always wrote the, the mothership joke for everybody. The next one in was for people who fancied themselves the cognoscenti. The third one in was for me and one other guy. That's the sweet yeah. spot you're talking about. I'd always hear a solo laugh and look at him. The fourth one, even I didn't fucking get. The fourth one, <laughs> you know, was like Renfield, out. Yeah, I remember, I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I remember being in a room of people who I thought were funny, and you were the litmus test, and, and we were watching something, and I, you were doing an interview, and I used this line every time I, I, we did it just yesterday on the podcast when I said the thing, and I didn't even hear the joke, but at the end you said, where's the body, Thorwall? And I dropped out because I knew you're going rear window and everybody in the room, and one guy goes, he's dumb. And I'm like, none of you are my friends anymore. Fuck that. You don't get it. And I based a lot of that stuff off the idea that there's certain people that you're targeting and you're, you're, you're isolating them out of the audience almost purposefully. Well, listen, I always, I always strive for longevity. I find showbiz a complete goat fuck and an unreliable <laughs> one. And man, I never looked at the far shore. I'm looking for the next uh, lily pad to stay unwet. And uh, so therefore, when I would uh, think, what should I shoot for here? I was never going to be mass. Uh, I wasn't going to be for the masses. I, it's not my monkey trick. I, I get it. So I thought, well, I got to work the mean line. And the further I stray off the mean line, either way, the more screwed I am. So, uh, listen, I, a, a bit of it's just a caprice. I don't take it that. I don't want people to sit here and, you know, think like I'm Larry Sanders watching the show a couple hours later and going over <laughs> like this a Bruder film. But you do got to think about it. And I remember thinking at some point they shouldn't get everything. And it's not because it's precious. It's not because it's special. But I'm telling you, it's not like I sit here and write E.E. Uh, e. E. Cummings' Arlie Army, or Army, <laughs> that comes up. That's the, my one thing. And I can, I, when I was young, it used to drive me crazy because I couldn't shut it off. And then I got to a point where I remember steering into the skit on something I couldn't get out of my head and think, you know, like where I'd think, I can't shut my mind off. A lot of comedians have that thing, or a lot of lyricists, or a lot of film editors. I remember thinking, okay deliberately try to keep that in your head for the rest of your life. There, go ahead, keep that in your head. Try for the rest of the, it's, it's funny, you have to steer into the skid to heal yourself of obsessive compulsive disorder, I think. And yeah. you see, you're not gonna do it for the rest of your life and the fear falls away. The fear is the thing that manifests itself. And therefore, I don't think like it all the time, but when I get on a 
when, when I'm on a podcast with other guys who I want to make laugh, when I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I'm with players now, yeah, I just uh, I, I take the, the hobble off. What do they call it when they put it on a, a thoroughbred and you just let them run, you know? And, yep. and let, when I get off, I'll take like a half an hour and then wind that and then I'm back to Squaresville. See, when you were first on SNL, I, I, I didn't get what you were doing when I was yeah. younger. I was watched it the first time. I went back, probably college or something, watched some more and go, I miss because I didn't understand Dennis. You know, Miller. Dana was the church lady. That wasn't an actual woman. That's, that's your, that's your no, fucking hero. Oh, he put, he put an outfit on and was a lady. I went back and watched with a, a, a big fur blanket on. And I was like, this is, this is just brilliant. And I, it was the fact that you didn't care if the audience laughed or not. And the only person I know that was as good at that was Norm McDonald because Norm would just go out there and he, you know, he was, and that was because of OJ Simpson and yeah. nobody, it didn't matter, but he just sit there and let it go. And well, you're Norm's going, one of my, one, Norm's one of my dearest friends. One of the few guys I'll ascribe genuine genius to. I hope I can find this email that Norm sent me. I was in the Himalayas a couple months back and I, I, I finally got sell. I was way out, way out in Bhutan. And I said, I've got to call somebody here. Wait, and are you living a reference? <laughs> like you're in the call from Bhutan. And I call, I sent Norm a message. He sent me back within 30 seconds. And I can't believe I'm not going to be able to find it now. The absolutely craziest thing I've ever read and uh, you guys talk amongst yourself for one second because I, I know this is awkward, but if I find this, you'll howl because he's so funny. Yeah, we could just uh, we could just do Norm the whole time. Yeah, you know, like, I remember when he called me up, you know. I thought, yeah. He was, uh, hey, what yeah. What the fuck are you doing in Bhutan? You know, we're supposed to have lunch tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You ever been to uh, the grocery store in Bhutan? You ever been there? Yeah, they got like a whole aisle of cock. Oh, I can't find it. I'm telling you, if, if I had this together, but I don't know how to use the technology all that well. But he said, I just said, Norm, I'm in Bhutan up on a mountain. Uh, how are you? And he wrote back and he said, um, so uh, honor the mother mountain. You must drink and then defend a whore. And <laughs> I came back. He said, you'll kill a goat somewhere near the mountaintop, and you must sacrifice him and offer some of this, the, the sacrificial juice to your Sherpa. And then if he takes it, it just went on and on. It was like the craziest thing. And I, I feel so disappointed. I, I'm doing it a disservice. But I said to my wife, the fact that this came back within three minutes absolutely boggles my mind. Yeah. That's hilarious. Well, Dennis, I wait. Did I, I ever start, tell you? Did I ever tell you my what? quick Norm story about hiring him? No. I, I'm, no. I'm in LA. I've got a talk show. Christ, I've had a lot of shows shot out from under me. <laughs> I'm, uh, I've got a talk show, and uh, Eddie Feldman, who's a dear friend, my head writer, comes in. He said, "Hey, I heard a joke that's absolutely brilliant from a kid who just moved here from Canada, and the joke was, I feel sorry for the homeless guy." but I really feel sorry for the homeless guy's dog because you know the dog's thinking, this is the longest fucking walk I've ever taken. <laughs> <laughs> we eventually go in somewhere because I can do this on my own, which is one of the great jokes ever. So I, I think, I, I said, well, 
is he new in town? I go, what's his name? He goes, Norm McDonald. I go, we'll see if he wants to write for the show. That's just one of the greatest things I've ever heard. Eddie sends him out a standard thing from a, a head writer saying, will you submit a packet? And Norm writes back that he doesn't submit packets, which is so <laughs> beautiful. He said, but I'll give you one joke, and if you want to hire me, fine, and I understand. He sends this joke. The beginning of the joke, the whole dissertation part up front is almost AP copy about Jeffrey Dahmer and how grim it was, and very detailed stuff about surgically removing the, the gallbladder. And, but, but, you know, it's like a Hannibal Lecter diary notation or something. And then the last part of the joke is uh, it, Norm gallops in with, in his defense, Dahmer said they started it. <laughs> <laughs> I hired him and I put him and Drake in the same room together. And, and they became these, best friends, didn't they? Oh, yeah. They, were, they, they, they tinfoiled the windows. It was all dark in there. And I remember knocking on their door once. This was at the beginning of the show, Ron. I think we shot at 3.30. It was 1.30. I hadn't heard from them. Okay, hey, boys, anything today? And uh, very nicely, they're not attitude, though. They just say, you know, uh, we're better. Uh, we'll slip it out under the door. And uh, <laughs> is, is this when you'd want it every day? They were very cooperative. Yeah, said, we're okay. We'll slip it out. And I was a good boss. Whatever anybody needed to sidle up to their muse. I'm, I'm not, I, Christ, what do I make? Darren McGavin and tribes? I don't give a fuck what they do. So uh, <laughs> they'd push this stuff out, man. And there were probably 10 jokes between the two of them. Uh, eight of them were the most brilliant stuff I've ever read, but completely unusable. Uh, one of them, I remember thinking you'd read a joke of Christ, am I going to go to hell for perceiving that joke? <laughs> and then one of them was just perfect. I mean, just perfect stuff. They, they wrote, they, David Feldman, I don't know if you remember Feldo, just perfect mm -hmm. jokes. What did Feldo told, uh, tell me one time? He said, uh, Feldo would write jokes that were so perfect, I would not use them. Uh, that's one thing I always did with writers because I always thought this is a weird trip that they're writing for me. These guys are geniuses. Uh, I, I, listen, I'm not a slacker as far as a writer, but I also want to be a mensch. If they handed something in that was for the ages, I would say to a writer, you keep this. I don't want to do this. I, I'll feel weird and conflicted about doing this. Feldo would send in jokes like, I think English is the creme de la creme of languages. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's as few words as you can use to write a perfect joke. I can't go near that. When the writers went on strike, David Feldman walked on the picket line holding a sign that was blank. <laughs> it's perfect. Did you ever have a writer on that? I mean, the show you had, the talk show was so crisp and so well done okay. that it, it, it almost felt like it was 50 people writing. Did you ever have a writer on there that you're like, this guy is so brilliant and never really got the credit? Like the, the guy that, I mean, somebody that just sits in your mind that says, my God, he's, he's a behind the scenes master. I think I had uh, five writing staff and uh, uh, Kevin Rooney, he, he gets credit. You know, everybody knows how brilliant Rooney is. Jose Arroyo. Uh, there was the guy who ended up inventing King of the Hill wrote there for a while. And then a cat uh, who ended up, uh, you know, I'm bad with names and all that. But uh, Leah Krinsky was a genius, you know, uh, from a, and uh, that writing room, it's so funny. 
we live in diminished times in that if anybody had heard what went on in that writing room, everybody's career would be dead. <laughs> They'd probably be in jail. But I'm telling you, I used to sit sometimes in that room and just watch it fly. And I felt like, uh, you know, I felt like Curly Neal in the circle at the beginning of a Globy game. You know, <laughs> just like, boom. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just geniuses. You know, I mean, how many in this comedy business, a little more than you'd think. I remember Seinfeld used to always have that theory of, uh, he said, uh, the universal theory of comedic constancy is in any given moment, uh, the number of comedians increases by a power of 10 every <laughs> year. He said, the number of truly funny ones remains constant at 37. <laughs> and I've met a lot of those 37, man. And you walk away, just go, wow, that is a switched on. When I first saw Hedberg, I thought, there's a switched on cat right there. Do you have a favorite uh, part of your career? Is there something that you look at? Yeah, like, I'm not like that. Frank. You don't, you don't I, care? I'm, I'm a, it's no sword from the stone shit, you know. I'm not John Norman Howard racing my car too fast. It's a job. I like writing jokes. Uh, if I had a favorite part, it would be that when, uh, when players would say they'd include me, that meant something to me. When I first met George Carlin and I, he saw me before I saw him and he walked across the room and said he dug it. Oh man. That's that's what I remember. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. But as far as, uh, and Carson, the first time I met Carson was pretty big. Uh, but. Oh, um, I'll tell you a good moment in my career. I was doing, hosting a young comedian special, and I was the host. And I'm in my makeup chair, and my makeup lady looks like she's had a mini stroke or something. And I look in the mirror, and Bowie came down to see me. And that, oh. that just wiped me out. He said, oh, you make me laugh. So uh, there's a few like that, but as far as a uh, favorite part job-wise, no. I, I, I'll take whatever job I have and try to do the best at it. I like to make a living, and I like to keep it on the down low as far as what it means, uh, because it means nothing. It means you got lucky. You, you, you have some trick you can turn in for green rectangles and provide meat for your head hole. That's all it is, man. I've met a lot, I've met a <laughs> lot of noble people in my life who never got a second second in the climb life, who are actually doing shit. I met Dr. Heimlich once in Cincinnati at a talk show, and I'm in the green room, and this is a little cat sitting there. I go, hey, how are you, brother? And I go, I'm Dennis Miller. I guess I'm Dr. Heimlich. And, you know, I like, I go, Dr. Heimlich? And he goes, I, I didn't ask for it to be named after. Can you <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. That- so when I see people beating their drum over, you know, a TV shot, you just go, what are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> this guy invented arguably, along with Bill W., one of the most life-saving human, uh, you know, keeping families together, all that. And then he, his first thing was he didn't want he, you, you to feel that he was self-aggrandizing. He didn't want top billing for the maneuver? Well, or as the, the uh, Me Too movement calls it, the Heimlich come on. But uh, <laughs> I don't find showbiz. Listen, it's fun, Frank. You know, Christ, I was a square kid. Yeah, you, but you know I, what I mean? Did you ever think you'd be in it? It's fun. No, I, I had no idea. But listening to you now, the, the ability for you to not give a shit that you I, like, I'm constantly 
worried that I'm going to go over a line and be politically incorrect. And it, I, even when I'm trying not to, it happens. And then, it, you know, for you, you can kind of brush it off. I, or you do brush it off. I watch well, that. as it happens more, Frank, you know, I'm a human being, but I got pretty good rhino skin. But when you read people who wish you dead, you know, you're a human being. But up to a point, you got to see who's wishing you dead. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like, uh, you know, it's not like Steven Pinker's wishing me dead. You got fucking morons who are jerking off in their basement. They take five seconds off from jerking off to wish you dead. <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> how, much, how much fucking sanctity can you apply to it? You know, hey, I mean? at least they're taking a little time off. Not yeah, doing exactly. See, multitasking would be worse. right. I, it's, it's uh, you know, hating me is like crop rotation so their knob doesn't fall off. <laughs> Well, even watching uh, the Hannity thing the other day and the people coming, uh, like yesterday, going crazy. I used to go on Fox News all the time, just the morning show and do it. And I couldn't take, I couldn't take it anymore. I, even just to go on, uh, what, what's the, the Fox, Fox and Friends? I used to do that. I'd have a good time. I'd do some jokes. And then I'd get crushed the next day. And people, would be, they'd just label me completely. And I'm walking away going, I'm just trying to entertain everybody. But I couldn't, t- I, just, I couldn't take it. I had to get out. I just, you seem to be able to. Well, just- you should be too, Frank, for Christ's sake. I'm telling you, and anybody I know who knows you thinks you're great at it. There's a whole horde of people out there whose creativity, the thing you do with your voices and your comedy, or I do with my lines and my comedy, they're doing that as pissing on yours. And I hate to hear that from you. It's fucking not cancer, man. You've got to man up a little. Fuck that. Everybody out there is hated by the people now. There's a whole cadre of hate. Hate is the coin of the realm. And then you're too smart to adhere to that. Don't give a fuck at some point. Christ, I could, a Russian weather satellite could call, fall out of orbit in the next three minutes and cleave my fucking think box. Am I supposed to give a fuck about some agoraphobic living in a fucking tater cellar out in Manitoba who hates my guts? Wake the fuck up, Frank. Changed me. You fixed me. I'm done. Yeah. It should. It's like Werner Erhard years ago when I was so neurotic and my pain was so precious in my 20s. He had a discipline called EST. And there was nothing to est except he'd say, you have to get it. And I remember thinking, what's he doing there? It's almost beautiful in a way because it is the last Tumblr click. You have to get it about life. There's, no, there, there's not going to be any magic thing. You get it. We spend so much time telling ourselves that we don't helm the ship that we believe that bullshit. The next time you do something on TV and are afraid what they're going to say, you should read it for an hour. Look at it. And like uh, Anthony Burgess, Malcolm McDowell, your way out of it. Keep your eyes open and read it. It's bullshit. It's the times we live in. In its own way, it's, as va- it's valid approbation. You're angering the right people, for Christ's sake. And you have to keep an open mind about being hated by the closed-minded. That, that in its own, is the red badge of courage. Come on, Frank. Get it well, on. What are you, like, 15 John, Holmberg's been living by that uh, the same way. Yeah. Yeah, well, my, my whole radio life has been, even at a 20 share in the mornings, 80% of the city hates me. So you have to fucking look at it like, I don't care if they like me or not. I've got a good thing going. I know I'm all right at it. The day I realized it was my ex-girlfriend was in the World Trade Center. She got out, but we didn't know it. And I told that story as open as I could tell it once I knew all the details the next time I was on. And I remember hearing, 
you're arrogant and making this about you. And I'm like, fuck you. I just didn't care. And that's when it kind of, it all sparks for you for a second. Like, I don't need to know these people. These are the people I want to go away. And I'll invite you to leave before I'll ever try to win you over. I just don't want to. Frank, listen, you're going to keep up that pussy guys you've got. I hope this guy puts the long knife in on the, on the show, Shauna. <laughs> that's what I'm doing the podcast. Right, that's what I, you're supposed to think. I, no, I've been, I've been getting better at it. I've been getting way, way better. It's one of the things where that's what the podcast is about for me to actually speak who I am and talk about where I come from on things. And generally on this podcast, we fall a little bit more kind of libertarianish. We're all a little socially, a little bit more to the left uh, and to and fiscally to the right and somewhere like, but we're common sense. And it seems like common sense has just gone away so much. But I get, to, I, I just get, I, I don't know. I used to get so scared, but home- hey here, Frank, wait, let, let me send some unguentine through the screen. Wake up. You're sinking in the shot, by the way. What are you in? <laughs> I know. Every time I look over, Christ, I all am- of a sudden you're Martin Sheen coming up from the water in Apocalypse <laughs> Now Redux. <laughs> Sit the fuck up. <laughs> He looks like he's in a dorm room futon. Where are you? <laughs> you know, Dennis, I was, t- I was talking to these guys before, and I'm thinking, and they know, Frank knows this, you and George Carlin and Hicks were the reason I started doing comedy. It was about 1991. I was, I was one of those dudes. You know, there was about a, a, a thousand of us going across the country wearing a leather jacket like Hicks trying to do acerbic lines like you and dreaming we could be Carlin. And, you know, it doesn't work out quite that way. But um, I'm thinking of your career. No one was more popular with liberal critics than you. And then, in my opinion, and and did such a shift, even though I don't think your act shifted that much, but you said 10 jokes that they didn't like and all of a sudden, they looked at you like Bob Dylan after he did the uh, Christian album. You know, it was just like they they jumped off the wagon with you. What what was that like? I mean, your audience, I'm guessing, shifted. Did you did you do different stuff, or you just said, "Hey, this is me, and this is where my head's at now"? Or you you've led me to an interesting place in this interview because I it's very infrequently you find the exact moment that something matters to you less than what you just illuminated it on. <laughs> 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 Who's lucky enough when they say to you, what's mattered the least in your 66 years on the pebble? And you were able to just distill it in one second. Are wow. you kidding me? Uh, and for Christ's sake, Twitter dislikes me. Never have lives less lived been more chronicled than Twitter. And I'm supposed to put the, uh, you know, I'm supposed to suck the pipe because of that. For Christ's sake, can you imagine if we'd had Twitter in Dickensian in England? around the mud hole back at the beginning of 2001. Can you imagine how vile it would have been? If you make it through to, like I said, I'm 66, and you're still looking for the approbation of strangers. Well, I can't say much much for me signals a life unlived uh, because I I tend to give big big credit. It's a big, scary goat fuck, and you got to navigate through on your own. But for me, if I make it to this age, and I'm still looking to be liked by strangers, for Christ's sake, you wouldn't even have me on here. You'd go, that's yeah. that suck who's doing a non-punchline gig at a B. Dalton tonight. I don't give a fuck. I always get worried when we have a guest on the radio show who's got the phone up, and they're, they're doing a face 
time live or whatever while we're on the air and I'm like, you, you're chasing an audience that makes me nervous. That makes me feel like you don't have confidence in you enough to have them find you. You're chasing them. And I think it's killing creativity. I think Twitter, I don't even have a social media. I get pushed constantly by my company. Like you got to get this. And I just, I think it kills creativity because you're playing to one rather than to yourself and what you know is right. It drives me nuts when people will tell you what they want and people react to it. Who cares? You know you're good or you know you're not. I've never had a core statement less embellished than right there. All of a sudden, you're writing Spencer's Gifts posters. What the fuck are you doing? (laughs) finally got you. (laughs) (laughs) Frank, Frank, exactly. That's all I was doing. He made made sense there. But I thought, my man has just left a big fucking Bob Foster, Mike Corey hole shot for the left. No, it was genius. Really. <laughs> is this the I time I get to tell Dennis Miller to fuck himself? We talked about that. He said, don't do it. I said, I'm going to do it. He said, don't do it. And bravo. Bravo. Oh, you finally did it. The, the oh, book was back down. Don't crank over there. For Christ's sake, he'll be curled up with Sylvia Plath's Dream Journal in a fucking duvet this afternoon. Fuck up, Frank Caliendo. Oh, God. I haven't cried this much since Lovitz. I don't know if that's a, I don't know if that's a plus or a minus for you, Dennis. But How many women have said that? <laughs> I love it. All right. I got to rock, boys. Uh, are we good? Are you guys staying? What, is this one of those fucking all-day things where you have to pee into a hip flask? You can't no, this is really good. No, this is the first half. We'll get you uh, yeah. back. Well, I can stay for a little more. I don't know the conf- confines of your gig, but I'm going to go have a little, uh, what am I going to have for lunch today? A little clam chowder. Oh, no, but uh, is- I'll stay for a few more if you got anything you want to ask me. Oh, this has been awesome. I, Your goal. Yeah, thank you. Incredible. Yeah, thank you so much. And Listen, uh, Frankie, put a smile on that preface over there, okay? Life's not that bad. There you <laughs> <go>. <laughs> I, I don't know. I went from enjoying you to being completely scared back to loving you again. <laughs> I was reading a book the other day about Noel Coward. And he met Truman Capote for the first time. He came home and he kept uh, a bit of a diary. He wasn't that ardent about it, but he would put observations down. He said, met Truman Capote tonight. Uh, not quite sure what that's all about. Has an interesting preface. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard anything more dismissive <laughs> than preface? It's like when Gore Vidal and Norman Mailer threw down on each other and... Uh, Mailer said, uh, uh, or, uh, Vidal came at me with his tiny fist. I thought, oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I got scared when my email to you, because Christian, who helped set this up, who works with you, had said, I don't know, Dennis, with, his, with technology, how good he's with it and figuring out Zoom. So I walked you through the steps of Zoom just in case. Yeah, you walked me through like fucking the, the pilot was dead and Karen Black had to land the 747, for Christ's sake. It, it, it's like, oh, you'll see a knob to your right. Put a butter knife in there and turn it. Have a, for Christ's sake, it's Zoom. I hit two buttons. I know, but he made it sound like that's what he didn't need to do. This is the email, the email I got back. I'm about to flip a coin to see if I take out a 30-foot or 50-foot restraining order against you. <laughs> <laughs> I did write that. I just and, wanted to light you up a little before oh, we got and, off. And for the guy who uh, it waxes poetic, your emails are the most contrite things in the world. It's just half a line initial for you, and you're out. Well, listen, I got my quirks, man. I'm telling you, I'm a damaged fucker in some ways, but 
I, one of my great joys is to be with uh, three other guys in a thing like this, and you feel like you didn't, you know, their thing. I could never throw a football. I was never adroit with women. But I don't know about you guys, but when you can sit in a quartet like this and just bat it around a little, play pepper, and have fun, this, this yes. is a, a super joy for me, man. It's good to meet you, Cat. I know Frank, but it's good to meet you, Cat. You too. Very Thanks. much. Yeah. All right, later, boys. I'll talk at you down the road. Thanks, Thanks. sir. Have some Thanks. chowder. Hey, Frank, yeah. you don't leave the Zoom on and then clock me for the next five years, right? <laughs> I said, that's all I need is big brother, cherubic big brother in my room. Oh, Dennis said, Dennis was watching a show I didn't like. I'm going to have to open a vein. (laughs) (laughs) There's Dennis Miller, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, that'll sweat you. That'll sweat you. Those are the types of, there's a guest right there. That guy, what the fuck do you need us for? Yeah, That's exactly what you would have thought it would be, but better. I remember yeah. he, had, he had a guy on his show on HBO. I don't remember the guest. Maybe it was Norm MacDonald. And he, and he reached over and he patted him and he goes, uh, when I met you, I knew you were funny. But as I got to know you, uh, I just, I kind of hoped that you'd be that guy. And he said, and it's never been uh, disappointing to me. You're, you are the guy I want you to be yeah. when the fourth ball comes down. And that's exactly what he is. He's, he's everything you want Dennis Miller to be. Uh-huh. And then as a person it's awesome he's great i'll tell you I, uh, like a, right in the first five minutes i get a text from michelle about problems going on in the house i tune out my brain for maybe 10 seconds i no longer know about 15 references he's made <laughs> i'm trying to catch up for the next 20 oh. minutes on different things as I'm trying to figure out what's what going is going on in the house. There's always, what, how can that happen that she's got to know and problem solved. I told, I told, and it only had to do with lunch. It was just little things about lunch and she's upset with Juliet about hating everything. But while doing that, Michelle is hating everything. It's yeah. Yeah. Where Juliet gets it from. She, she literally said this earlier today, but because I've been trying to fix some things, she told Juliet, or Juliet goes, you're not even listening to me. And Michelle goes, well, I wasn't interested anymore. <laughs> and I go, you can't do that to a 13-year-old. That's, that's what Dennis Miller did to me six times on the podcast. Frank, I'm, I, met, I met Dennis Miller 28 years ago. He insulted me terribly, and it was hilarious. And I finally meet him 28 years later, and he emasculated me even worse during this time. So... You know yeah. what? It was a perfect bookend. And I always say, um, did I expect Dennis Miller to be like, pat me on the back and going, yeah. what a good fellow you are. No, he's smarter than you. He's funnier than yeah. you. I want him to be that way. Yeah. How, he disappointing, how disappointing would it be if Dennis Miller was like just a sweet, cherubic guy who really didn't uh, really fire hurt. off a lot? Yeah, it would, be, it would, it would feel awesome. fake. That's him. Well, here's yeah, the funny thing. Like when, I'm, when I'm on his show, he's so complimentary. He, it's yeah. usually not face-to-face, though, either. I was enjoying yeah. it. I mean, I thought it was a lot of fun, but I was also, like, 
trying to process a couple different things. When I went into the yeah. Seinfeld thing, I didn't really have anything to say at that point. I was just trying to reiterate to get my brain to reset. And he just, he called me on it. Uh, and I was thinking about halfway through, I'm like, should I cut that out? No, I'm leaving that in. No way. It's too much fun. It's way too much. No, just All- I couldn't even think of it. Yeah. It was just redundant. And then I got into that story early too. That was the first time I got the text was with Bill Walton. I start to go into Mike and Mike and he goes, that's like two different balls talking to each other. And I was like, <laughs> Oh God, now I forgot what my story was because I love the line that he turned yeah. that phallic. Yeah. No, it was that's he's about as good as they get. There's nothing we should just cancel the podcast. Right. <laughs> I really don't feel like any of us are that good. No offense to either of you. I know I'm not on that yet. That's oh, where the level is, and that's where we need to just be done. That's there's there's the bar. What did Rich say? Rich come in? I said, Yeah, I agree with John. Let's end on a high note. Wow, that's not what I was saying. What a dick. <laughs> I'm saying let's cancel. Let's cancel the podcast. Let's act like it never existed. This will be the only one, and then we disappear from each other's lives. Toledo, the high note might have been your volume control. because that was was at a level that uh, that the elephant man could have heard, Chachi. It's like the day they invented the cochlear implant. The guy's screaming in my ear. I didn't even know what was going on, Philip. Even Helen Keller's having a problem with it. Which is oddly who I was trying to think of when I said the Elephant Man. Helen Keller, yeah. Elephant Man. And the Elephant Man. They uh, look exactly alike. Oh, sure. That was awesome. All right, guys. <laughs> um, I love you. Bye. Bye.